You're listening to the Hanging with the AD podcast, where we break down hot topics in athletic administration and lessons learned through leadership. Now, here are your hosts, Josh Matthews and Don Baker. Today's guest is Mr. Scott Strickland. Scott serves as the Director of Athletics at the University of Florida in Gainesville, Florida. Scott is a strong leader with tremendous experience who shares the University of Florida's most treasured values from the success and well-being of their student-athletes to excellence across the expanse of both men's and women's sports. A forward-thinking national and regional leader in the field of athletic administration, Strickland serves as the chair of the SEC's Working Group on Fan Experience and has served as the SEC's representative on the NCAA Division I Leadership Council. Strickland is also known for his accessibility and interaction with fans on social media. Strickland has earned praise for his performance, earning the 2015-16 Athletic Director of the Year Award from the National Association of College Directors of Athletics, which highlights the efforts of athletic directors at all levels as well as recently being named the 2020 Athletic Director of the Year by the Sports Business Journal. Make sure to have something to write with and on as we sit down and get to know Mr. Scott Strickland. All right, Mr. Strickland, uh, we're so glad to have you join Don and I today for this episode of Hanging with the AD. It's always nice to have a university athletic director and we know during these times you're extremely busy, which you're always extremely busy. So thanks for taking some time to join us today. I appreciate you having me. Thanks, uh, thanks for doing this. And so we're all learning how to, to do Zoom calls these days. It's a good way to connect and appreciate you having me on. Absolutely. Well, thanks for joining us. For our listeners, Scott Strickland is the Director of Athletics at the University of Florida. He is role leading the Gator Athletic Program since November of 2016. Before coming to Gainesville, Mr. Strickland led the athletic programs at the Mississippi State University. And I'll stop right there. I know Scott's been at other spots, other universities. I'll stop and let him tell us a little bit more about his journey in the world of athletics. And Scott, we like to start each show with just a short bio of our guest, and we call that the back of the baseball card bio. So if you could uh, just share with us and our listeners what the back of Scott Strickland's baseball card might look like. Well, have uh, I'm well traveled. I'd like I would like a uh, a guy they throw in uh, a player to be tra- uh, to be named later on one of those rookie card those baseball cards. Um, I've worked at six different schools. Uh, worked at one of them, uh, my alma mater, Mississippi State, twice. So I went to school there, graduated, worked for a little bit there, then went to Auburn. Was there for five years. Left there, went to Tulane for about 15 months, a little over a year, and uh, then headed to, to Baylor University out in Texas. Was there four years. Uh, back in the SEC at the University of Kentucky for five years, and then moved, returned to Mississippi State. Was there for two years in a associate AD role and was promoted to athletic director, where I was there for about six and a half years as AD. So I was. I was in total, I was back in Stark for about eight and a half years. And uh, then, as you mentioned, been at Florida since uh, late 2016. Most of that time coming up in, in college athletics, I worked in the communication media relations field. And uh, as I progressed, you know, kind of branched out did a few other things, did some marketing, ended up doing some development, fundraising work, and was, you know, as it often is the case in, in, in any profession, but in athletics, certainly at the right place, right time, and was able to have the opportunity to be the AD at Mississippi State and now Florida. That's great. Well, um, you did say you're well-traveled, but uh, been to some great places. You know, we've kept up with the University of Florida a little bit at Pope High School because Kelly Barnhill, one of our former great players, uh, was fortunate enough to go down and represent Florida for four years, and we're proud of her and what she did down there as well as what she did at Pope. So thanks for taking care of her, and and we do know y'all have things going in the right direction, obviously, at Florida. But this podcast is primarily – For the high school athletic administrator, we think that's our audience. We do have some college folks listening as well as middle school and hopefully just leaders in general, it will benefit. But if you could go back and think about your high school years, what did they look like? What were you involved with? Maybe what were some of the issues you had to deal with? I'm getting up there in age, so that's going to require me to to go into the memory bank pretty deep. You know, I grew up loving sports, 
I think most most of us who end up in some form of athletics, we can we share that. You know, we we had a love of sports, and you know, I played a little bit, but candidly, I didn't have a lot of confidence in playing. I, you know, as a junior high, I played football and and basketball, but uh, as competition got tougher, I probably should have stuck it out, but I didn't. But what I I found myself doing is is I kind of started creating my, a role for myself that that really is a precursor for an administrative career. I was, uh, for one thing, I got involved in the school paper and ended up being a sports editor of the high school paper. Um, but when I would recognize, I'd be at a, a, one of our basketball games or football games, I would recognize the, the local media person. And I took it upon myself to, you know, make sure they had everything they need and take care of them, which is kind of a media relations role. Sounds great. And uh, and then I, you know, I, I did some stuff with our football radio network. So I traveled with the football team. I, I was, uh, I did PA at basketball. I just, I was around it because my friends were all playing and I love the sports. I ended up, I had forgotten all about this, but I went back, I uh, was asked to go speak at my, my high school alma mater's graduation one year. And they, uh, they had, they had, pulled this out and I'd forgotten all about it but my senior year we didn't we didn't really have a an airmail program and so I actually put one together and was the uh, self-proclaimed commissioner of this airmail <laughs> league we had basketball and flag football and you know so again I, I, I had forgotten I'd done that but I, I remember when they brought when they brought it to my attention so I just I did a lot of things that once I got into college and started volunteering in the athletic program at Mississippi State, I'd already kind of scratched and began kind of scratching that itch to, to kind of be involved in athletics, understanding that you don't have to play or coach to, to be a part of it. That's good. So when Greg Sankey needs some help, you've got experience to help him out, right? He probably thinks he gets too much. I try to give him too much help right now. So Greg does a great job. <laughs> yes, sir. Uh, that's a hard job. Uh, commissioner is a hard job because you, uh, the impartiality of that mm-hmm. is really challenging. And, you know, to me, one of the things that, that I love about being on a campus is you get a chance to win in everything you do. And a conference commissioner, he only wins when the referees don't mess up. So um, <laughs> I like the thrill yeah. of competition too much, I think, to, to be a commissioner. Yes, sir. Don's our district athletic director. He just moved from a local high school to the district athletic director. I think he has that same feeling now. As long as the buses show up and all the coaches get paid, he wins. But uh, he didn't get to yell, go, uh, go, Greyhounds or anything like that anymore. So uh, That's a good point. uh, One thing I wanted to do is fast forward way past high school and get to where you are now. You followed an uber successful, popular athletic director in Jeremy Foley there at Florida, as well as Greg Byrne at Mississippi State. So you've done that a couple times. Can you start us off by just talking about what it takes to follow an extraordinary leader and how you manage that process? Well, it's a real benefit to follow someone who has done a good job because that typically means you're walking into a good situation. Yep. Um, and, you know, obviously I've not, I've not been on the other side of that where you follow someone who wasn't successful and you have to start picking up the pieces. So I can't really speak to that, but I just, in my own personal experience, uh, Greg had done a great job at Mississippi State. And obviously Jeremy is, you know, iconic and 25 years as athletic director in the SEC and the, and the job he did here at the University of Florida. And um, so I inherited really good staffs and good coaches and uh, more importantly, good cultures that is you know kind of the backbone to the success that we have. And so I just, I'm, I'm quick to understand that, that any success we have is despite me and not because of me. And so I have no problem, you know, getting out of the way and, and, and let others get, get the credit and, and certainly Jeremy and Greg deserve a ton of credit for the, for the roles that they play at those institutions that I've benefited from. Uh, I think one of the things that also helps is uh, I consider both those guys friends and when you know sometimes when you, when you would take over for someone I think you human nature sometimes the guy who, who just left may not be the one may not want the guy coming in behind them to be as successful and uh, you know Greg was incredibly helpful to me even after he, he left and I became the AD there just giving advice and and helping me point in the right direction and Jeremy continues to this day he's he's a uh, consultant on our staff he has a title of emeritus and I have a I use him as a resource weekly because he just has great insight great wisdom certainly great experience to lean on so I think the, the 
the fact that I had a relationship with those guys probably made following them really uh, uh, a lot easier, made that transi- transition smoother because of the respect I have for them. And in a lot of ways, I, I, you know, especially here at Florida, I feel like I'm just a caretaker for, for this university and this athletic program that Jeremy poured his whole career into. That's good. Taking that just a little bit further, looking at your staff, there's some very reputable people on under your leadership there. You have Jay Jacobs, former director of athletics at Auburn University. You have Steve Spurrier, the extremely successful head ball coach. Can you talk to ADs, coaches, leaders in general about the type of personality one must have to hire reputable, successful people to work under them, or maybe a better way to say that is to work alongside them? Well, I wish I wish I knew what the key was. I've been very fortunate to have you know we I, as I mentioned, Jeremy had a great staff here, and Coach Burr was already here. Linda Teeler uh, and Chip Howard, who are executive associate ads, were already here. They're incredibly talented. Uh, a guy named Mike Hill, who's now the AD at Charlotte, was already here, and, and just really really a, a key member of the staff here. Uh, when Mike left uh, to go to, I'm sorry, Chip Howard actually left us for a little while, and I was fortunate enough to hire Laird Beach, who was at K-State at the time. Now he's the head of uh, the AD at Memphis. Hmm. You know, the um, deciding who's going to be on your team and looking for, for, you know, we all want talented people, but looking for, for people who fit the culture, who understand that, that they play a role, but it's not a, just about them. I think it's really critical and really key. And, was, you know, Jay Jacobs is a great example. We were able to bring him on. When Mike Hill left to go to Charlotte, we brought Jay Jacobs in. And, and uh, I'd known Jay for 20-something years and just knew he fit this culture. There were a lot of, you know, I know a lot of other really talented people who I probably could have gone and, and gotten interested in this job. But And this is not a knock, but I just didn't think they fit the culture here. Right. And, so I, I just finding someone who really is going to buy into to what the department represents wherever you are and is, ref, and you know, part of that to me, part of my filter is whoever you hire is reflection on the leader. And so I want to make sure that we're hiring people that, that I'm, I'm not going to mind the way they reflect on me personally and me professionally. And we're fortunate at Florida to, to have a lot of those kind of people. Scott, I recently saw that the website Athletic Director U released for the first time a list of AD performance ratings. Uh, and for what it's worth, you were rated the second highest uh, collegiate AD in the country. Obviously, first in the SEC, so you've got that feather in your hat. And the list was based on which administrators have had the largest impact when it comes to elevating their respective athletic departments and sports programs. So, obviously, congratulations. But what do you feel like you and your staff have done or put in place to be recognized recognized in such a way well uh, thank you that was really nice for them to put that list out i uh there's so many factors that go into having a successful program and when you're the ad you realize very quickly the amount of control you have beyond who you put around you is really limited right you know you can you can set the tone you can make sure people understand what is important to you that you're going to operate with integrity that you're going to have character that you're going to you know competition's important and you want to compete the right way but you want to get after it but at the end of the day we're as good as our coaches and in turn our coaches are as good as their athletes mm-hmm. and you know candidly when you're at a place like Florida you have the opportunity to have a lot of really good coaches and, and a lot of spectacular athletes like Kelly Barnhill. And so that listing really should should be broken down into the list of all those coaches at those schools because that they are really the ones who determine how successful a program is. And I'll go back to Jeremy. Jeremy, I've only hired, had to hire a couple coaches since I've been at Florida because – you know, you walk in and there's Tim Walton, who's won a couple of national championships. And there's Mary Wise, who's won 19 SEC volleyball championships. And there's right. Mouse Holloway, who's, I think he's won close to 10 national champions and championships in track. And you just go down the list, uh, Roland Thornquist with numerous women's tennis championships. It makes it a lot easier for you to be a good leader and a good administrator when you have high caliber coaches who are about the right things. You know, they're not, they're mm-hmm. not me people. They're not selfish, um, but they, they want to be successful. They want their teams to be successful. And the most important thing is uh, to put a program in place where you, you can treat 
everyone as fairly as possible, as equally as possible, and let them all know that they're all important. And we're not just worried about winning in football. We're not just worried about winning in men's basketball. We have 21 sports at Florida. We, we think we should compete for champions and championships in all 21 of those. Mm, that's good. You know, listening to some different podcasts with you and some of your peers, one thing is very apparent that it takes a lot of experience and, and in some cases, a lot of experience at a lot of places to get to that top chair. Could you speak for a minute on how you know when it's time for a new experience? I know that there's a lot of ADs and coaches or even business leaders out there thinking about that next opportunity and what they need to do. What was your thought process as you were presented opportunities to move on from one school to the next? And in some cases, when you were at a really good spot uh, where you were currently serving? You know, I think that's always something that uh, each person has to look at individually. Mm -hmm. Um, To me, it's a, it's, there's a a spiritual component to that. You know, early in my career, I was scouring the NCAA news that used to list all the job openings and, and, you know, I would throw my name, you know, throw my resume and apply here and there. if I saw something that interested me and not once in my career did I even get a job interview when I just blindly applied for a position. But every position I've gotten, I got a phone call one day or somebody reached out and said, hey, there's this opening here. Would you be interested in talking to us about it? Or an intermediary would call and say, hey, this this AD over here asked me for some names. I'm going to give them your name if you're okay with that. And those are the leads that ended up leading to, to new jobs for me. And so that kind of, I figured that out about halfway through my career and I stopped sending in the applications and the resumes. Right. And I figured that when the time came, if I did a really good job at what I had in front of me, mm-hmm. uh, the opportunities would find me. I didn't have to go search for them. And the other part of that is sometimes I just, you kind of know if you're in tune with where, you know, what, what the will and what God's will in your life is supposed to be. And, and, you know, you end up following that. At least that's what I believe is if you're in a daily walk there, you'll, you'll hear that call when the time comes. I had a, an opportunity to, to go when I was in Kentucky to, to go to a, a really nice school and a really good job. And I'd only been in Lexington three years at that time. And I just, I didn't feel the timing was right. And I just didn't have that call. I didn't feel like I was being led to, to leave at that time. And so we stayed put. And uh, a couple of years later, the Mississippi State job, you know, Mississippi State approached me and it just felt right. Not just because it was my alma mater. It just felt like, okay, this is the right thing, the right time. And same thing when, when the Florida job came open. And where do you see your peace? Where do you see, you know, you feel like you're being led? And um, it's interesting. Almost every time I've had a new job opportunity come along, something has happened in the in the months, in the weeks leading up to the opportunity before I even knew there was potentially be an opportunity where I would feel a, re- a restlessness. And I just think that sometimes that's the way we get spoken to, right? That, right. Uh, we yeah. don't know where it's coming from. We don't know what it means, but there's a restlessness that you know, maybe it's time to, to be prepared for something that might come along. And so probably the best advice for all that, for all of that is do as good a job as you can in what you have and people are going to notice and pay attention. And if you do that, when the right opportunity comes, you just have to look in your heart and, and make a determination if, if, if that's where you need to be. Uh, and, you know, if you want to grow and you want to move forward or if you need to stay put. Well, Coach, thanks for sharing. I mean, I think it's obvious that feeling that divine intervention is the most important and then having your family support. And it's great to hear uh, kind of inside how you think and, and uh, make those decisions. So thanks for sharing that uh, personal philosophy with us there. Uh, I want to change a little bit. Uh, and uh, You talked about the greatness of Florida and the great things about being in Florida. I actually have a college friend who's the AD up at Newberry High School right up the road from you guys down there in Gainesville. He took me to a Florida football game back in 2001, and it was an absolutely great experience. Loved it. Can you tell us what is the best thing about being an athletics director and maybe more specifically the director of athletics at the University of Florida? Well, my friend Greg Byrne always, and I think he pulled this from somebody else, but he's the one I'll attribute it to. He always would say that the best thing about college athletics, and you could extrapolate this to, to being an athletic director, they would say the best thing about college athletics is the fans' passion and and commitment and, and love of their school. And then in the same breath, you would say the worst thing about being in college athletics is the fans' <laughs> passion and commitment and love of their school. So, um, you know, I, I love competition. So I, I love – that's what, what I love about my job is the ability to be with really talented young people and watch them grow and pursue their dreams in an academic setting and then uh, be alongside coaches you, you, you respect and trust 
us that watch them do the same thing and then watch just the, the team building that goes on with that, not just within the team itself, but, you know, throughout the department. And, and then as an extension of that through the fan base, the alumni base and the student body, there's something really special about that. And so that being said, as I mentioned earlier, we have a lot of really talented coaches here at Florida and, and great fan support and, and a lot of other advantages that gives us opportunity to be really successful in a lot of things. And it doesn't just happen because we have Florida on our chest. It just doesn't just happen because we're at a place with nice weather and 20 million people. But those are all things that help. Uh, but we've got to work really hard and we have to do things the right way and we have to take care of one another. And by doing that, we have a chance to have a lot of success. And, and you know, that's, if you're in athletics, the fun is in the winning. And uh, I don't think we have to apologize for that. I will not apologize for ever, ever winning. I can assure you. Speaking to that care, we're not sure when this is going to air, but we're, we're having this conversation right in the middle of the COVID-19 quarantine. In mid-March, when the SEC decided to shut everything down, you went on Twitter and spoke to Gator Nation in a video message. And it was very personal uh, and, you know, as close as you could to come to looking them eye to eye. Why was it important for you to do that in person, so to speak, uh, as opposed to another form of communication? Well, I, like you guys probably do, I, I like to study really successful leaders. And, and I think when you're in times of crises or, or when things are unknown, it's really important for a leader to be as visible as possible. There's a fine line there. You can be overly visible, but I think it's important that you, you know, you try to be reassuring and communicate directly with um, the people that you're leading. And so whether it's our fan base, our staff, our coaches, uh, you got to have regular communication, especially in times when communication is is not normal. And we're certainly in that time right now. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I wish there was this grand plan that I could say that, that we're following other than just top of mind that we need to communicate on a regular basis. Right. And I know that we can only imagine how how different the busy is for you today and, and how we're trying to figure out these answers to this new experience. I know that uh, SEC Commissioner Greg Sankey was quoted recently in regards to the return of athletics. We're, we're kind of getting beat over the head with when are we going to be able to come back? And his answer was, you know, we're not going to determine the timeline. The virus will determine the timeline. And that's true. And I know that we're all used to having the answers when, when people come to us right now and, you know, they say, you know, what are we going to do? We don't have it. We just have to say, we just really don't know. Is there anything that you have found yourself doing uh, that is maybe new or maybe some things that you haven't done in a while that you're really enjoying doing during this time off? And I use this, that word off very loosely. I'm sure your plate is still just as full. It just looks a little different than it normally would. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm probably, probably getting more sleep than normal and probably exercising a little bit more and sure. taking better care of myself. I have uh, two teenage daughters, one of whom is, is been off at college and now she's back here taking online classes finishing up the semester from home so uh it's given my wife and I a chance to, to have some really good quality time with our kids you know reading and when there's between conference calls and and, and right. uh phone calls and all the other stuff that we're doing you know just trying to trying to rest up because this is this time is not going to last forever and uh to, to the question that you, you referenced Commissioner Sankey getting about when we're going to start back, we don't know the answer to that, but we need to we need to be prepared to, to be going full bore when that time does come. Right. And uh, so in a lot of ways, you you know, I don't know what the summer is going to look like. This is in the spring right now. We're a few weeks into this thing. This may be a year where we have summer and spring and our summer our typical summer doesn't occur because we're we're busy right. getting after it and trying to ramp back up. I hope that's the case mm-hmm. anyway, but uh, just a lot of unknowns right now. Scott, I want to talk a little bit about serving and serving others and, and, and your service. One of the things you're serving on is the College Football Playoff Committee. Obviously, that's a very prestigious seat. I know you also serve on other committees and other organizations, but can you talk to the AD and the coach on the importance of serving on other organizations and committees outside of their own program, both on and off campus? Sure. You know, you've got to be deliberate, I think. I don't ever want to get to a situation where the uh, a campus uh, a committee or, or some group I'm part of away from the University of Florida is taken away from the, from the job I'm doing here and the responsibility I have at the University of Florida. So I think you have to be careful about that. But 
you know, it's an honor when you get asked to do something like that. And I've been fortunate to, to serve on a few of those. And, and I think uh, there's something healthy about that. I think there's a balance, though, like I said, that, uh, you know, I have some colleagues they're on they're on every committee. You sh- you, when you turn around, hmm. uh, they seem to be on a different committee. And sometimes I worry that that, uh, it, that that's easy to have happen to you. And so I try to guard against that a little bit because I, I, I don't want ever I don't want our student athletes, our coaches, our staff to ever feel like they're not our number one priority. Yeah, that power to say no is pretty tough. I found, I imagine at your level, it's really tough. It can be. And I, I think, you know, I think experience helps with that, to be honest with you. Early in my career, you know, I think I probably said yes to everything that I got approached to and trying to do a little bit better job with that. But I do think you're also, if you're not going to serve in those roles, somebody has to. And so you gotta, you, you've got to be willing to step up when your time is called uh, if you feel like you can make a difference and you feel like you have the time on your schedule to do so. That's good. Yeah, that's good. The balance part. Now, you you already referenced uh, Tim Walton, your softball coach, and some other coaches. I think Mary Wise is involved with this as well. But I know Becky Burley and former Florida coach Billy Donovan, they've all been involved in the What Drives Winning, Brent Ledbetter's program. And Don and I have become very enthralled with it. Don's actively involved in the monthly meetings, and we're trying to apply that to our high school athletic departments. Can you talk about what you have witnessed from your softball, soccer, volleyball programs as these coaches have implemented the What Drives Winning ideals? You know, that's really part of a larger – we do have some sports that have done – have drilled down a little bit more on Brett's program, but – Brett actually leads a, what we call coaches collaboration, uh, which happens once a month. And it's all of our head coaches get together and, and Brett kind of facilitates the conversation. And it's, you know, that, that is for head coaches only. I don't attend. My staff doesn't attend. Mm-hmm. It is just our head coaches and the feedback we get from them. And it is very helpful, not just to, to have someone like Brett with his background and knowledge to lead the conversation, but just to learn from one another. You know, I was going through the, some of the accolades of, of our coaches. I didn't get through near all of them, but for each of our head coaches to go into a room where you have all these super successful coaches that are on our campus that understand the place where you work, they may be, you know, viewing it from a slightly different lens, but to have that same perspective and then be able to share and learn from one another is really powerful. And one thing I know that, in, you know, in being an athletic director, I, I value the times when I can be with some of my colleagues from other schools across the country that are, have, you know, have the same challenges that I do, but at a different school. And uh, that's helpful. You know, being, you mentioned the committees thing, you know, I've, uh, Joe Castiglione owns a guy at AD in Oklahoma. I've gotten to know really well because we're both on the, the college football playoff committee and um, the ability to, uh, to develop that relationship with him. And then, you know, reach out to him and say, hey, I'm, what are you seeing here? How are you managing this? That's, and, and there's a lot of others, I'm fortunate, that be able to do that with cross-country. That's, that's really impactful. It's helpful. And, and the same thing with uh, what drives winning, the ability to have somebody else provide a perspective on, on a challenge or maybe something you hadn't thought of yet. It's, uh, that peer review is, is a powerful thing. And um, I think if you're learning and you're growing and you're wanting to be as good a leader as possible, something that you're going to be naturally drawn to. And when you look at uh, whether it be Brett coming in and, and doing that with your coaches, or uh, I know that the SEC commissioner came and spoke to your coaches recently and some of your athletes, and obviously, you know, you stress the, the importance of, of leaders coming from outside of your organization to speak to your staff. How do you measure the value that a speaker delivers once, once they've come and met and then they leave? You know, I think that sometimes you bring other people in just so they hear a different voice. I mean, you're surrounded by unbelievable, successful staff. Uh, and you would you would think that a kid would be crazy not to listen, you know, to their to their coaches. But what is the value of that different voice coming in? And then how do you measure that? Uh, I don't know how you measure it. That's a great question, Don. But beyond the content of whatever that person may be bringing to the table, the the fact that you you do that, I think, sends a strong message to your coaches and to your staff that you value them enough to present them opportunities to learn and grow from somebody else. Mm-hmm. Yep. And you're right. They don't, you know, I like to think they like to hear from me occasionally, but but they probably like a different voice from time to time. Sure. And, and, and candidly, I, you know, as a leader, sometimes you run out of material. You want somebody else to come in. And it's kind of like with it. your kid. You know, sometimes yep. a parent can deliver the same message over and over 
to their kid and, and it kind of goes one in one ear and out the other and suddenly a teacher or somebody else that the, the kid has developed a relationship with or respects will say the same thing and it'll a light bulb oh, yeah. will off. The kid will come home saying, you know, I should start doing the X and you're like, I've been telling you that. <laughs> yeah, that's genius. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So sometimes the same message just delivered with a different viewpoint, a different voice is really helpful. Sure. Yeah, so I'm looking forward to the next AD meeting or the next couple where we get guest speakers as well. So uh, we're about a year we're about a year yeah. into Don's leadership. I'm ready for a guest speaker now. Yeah, no pressure. Yeah. <laughs> no, he's he's doing well. So Scott, I'd like to kind of change the topic a little bit and talk about fundraising if we could. I know high schools are always fighting for funds and so are colleges and we're about to be in a little different world with raising funds, but wanted to get in specifically to your Gator Nation Giving Day because something intrigued me that I think could be applicable to, to programs, middle school, high school, college, all the way up because you ask, I guess, the, the donation levels is promoted of $5 to $5 million. Obviously, there's not a lot of $5 million people out there. But for our world, the $5,000 are hard to get. That 5 to 10 to $50 range is really a sweet spot, especially at the high school level where a lot of our alumni are in college, not a lot of income, are very young in their careers, still not a lot of income. So I was just curious of that 5 to $50 amount. Can you talk about how many people are, are really the value that that level has at your level? And maybe if you were doing it at the high school level, how you would massage it and, and focus on that lower level giver? Well, there's a lot to unpack there, and you're exactly right. We'd all like the big heavy hitter to come in and write a check and, and make every you know help you get to your goals quicker. But and we're fortunate we have some of those. But I think we have thirteen to fifteen thousand of our Gator Boosters program, and you know the vast majority of those are rank and file grassroots. You know they may give for the you know because of a of a donation required to get a certain. Uh, level football ticket but a lot of them just give because they want to be a part of the program at a hundred dollars a year whatever it is Mm -hmm. and those people obviously are really important because we can get typically we can get a lot of them and the more of those you get you can make a huge impact and then the other thing is it just builds community Mm -hmm. right and and so much the value of athletics whether it's at the high school level or the collegiate level or even the professional level is the way it ties people together and it it builds community. And so, you know, the more invested you can give people a way to be, the, the, the more of a connection they're going to feel. And it just, it kind of snowballs. And so, you know, there's the annual giving or the, or the grassroots giving is, is really an important way to do that. And, you know, we, we do focus a lot on facility projects and this level, and those do tend to take larger gifts, but we're able to do that because we have such a, such a strong annual giving program through Gator Boosters, and we're able to get a lot of people involved with our program that way. That's great. I think the takeaway there is the building of community. I think a lot of times, especially in the high school world where we're wearing a lot of hats, we go raise money for a specific thing, a specific facility, and we forget about the building of community. So I'm glad you said it that way. That puts it in a lot better perspective, in my opinion, in my perspective. So thanks for saying it that way. Uh, Scott, wanted to talk a little bit about John Cohen, former colleague, I guess, or current colleague at Mississippi State, and he worked for you at, uh, at Mississippi State as the baseball coach there. He was on episode three with us, and we were blessed to have him and him take some of his time, just like you are today, and we're, we're very privileged to have uh, you two on our show. He mentioned you a few different, uh, about three different times, actually. The first time he mentioned you as a mentor, and I know that has to be a compliment for somebody as successful as John Cohen to say, you're a mentor of his, so I just wanted to share that back with you as well. Well, I appreciate that. You know, uh, John and I were in school together at Mississippi State. He was the starting left fielder, and, and I was the uh, the baseball sports information director. So we got off the bus. Everybody wanted to see John, and, I, you know, I just wanted to find the press box. But <laughs> So we've known each other going back to when we were in college. And even when back then, you know, John thought at a different level. You know, you're around a bunch of baseball players traveling around the SEC, which was – 
really the first time in my life I got to be around a team like that, and it was a great experience. But you're around a bunch of guys, and, and you know, they're a bunch of college guys, and they talk about things college guys talk about, and, and uh, it's kind of mindless in a lot of ways. And John was always a guy that kind of thought at a different level. And just, had, had, you know, his conversations were a little more interesting. And, uh, and then certainly have kept up with him in his career, and we reunited. We were actually both at Kentucky at the same time. I'm Mitch Barnhart's staff. John was a baseball coach, and I was assistant AD there. And then we ended up both being at Mississippi State together at the same time. And, you know, there's not many people can make that transition from, from coaching to administrator, but I think John's done a really good job. And, you know, he comes from an interesting background. He probably told you his dad was a law professor at Alabama. I said, you know, John's just is a really diverse guy and has a lot of interest and really looks at problems from a different perspective. And, you know, I, I used to, when he was the baseball coach at Mississippi State and I was the AD, I would go and bounce things off of him that had nothing to do with baseball just because I appreciate his perspective. And he always said, put things in a way that really made me think. And uh, that's, that's a real rare trait for someone to have to be able to do that. And so I think it's, it's one of those reasons why he's been able to make that adjustment so well into administration. Well, you set up my second question or my second part very well about bringing him in and allowing him to be a part of the process, the athletic department processes with interviews or decisions while he was still just a coach. And I think there's a lesson there to leaders to see that it's important to recognize talent and then get them involved at the higher level, even before they're actually, before they actually have the title. So can you speak to how you pick out the up and comer ADs or next leaders and invest in them? Well, you know, I think you look for people who can bring value, right? And we're, uh, we're really fortunate in Florida. We have a lot of, a lot of those kind of people, a lot of uh, folks who, who bring a lot of value at different levels. But you just, you know, you look for when you're in a staff meeting, you know, who makes comments or who adds input that, that furthers conversation and, and, or maybe puts the conversation down a path that it wouldn't have gone otherwise that's really productive. I tell young people all the time, you know, do a really good job of what you do, but look for ways you can provide extra value. And, and for everybody, that's a little, that may be something different. But, um, you know, if you're, a, if you're working in the business office, you have to do a really good job at the task in front of you. But maybe while you're you know, on your lunch break, you know, hang out with the guys in operations or hang out with the fundraiser and figure out what's going on in their world. And, and you might learn something that's going to help you provide more value down the road to wherever you're working. And so I just think that's, to me, that you just look for talented people and you try to have your radar, your antenna up all the time to help identify and pay attention. And, you know, and then hopefully you have a culture that rewards those kind of people. And, you know, whether it's by promotion or, or salary or whatever, um, because you, you know, you want to nurture that. It's Florida's a little different model. And I think every school is different. You know, at Mississippi State, we had great resources relative to a school our size, but we were also uh, financially at the lower end of the SEC. And because we were a sm- smaller state and had smaller alumni base and all that, that goes along with that. And so, you know, when you're hiring somebody, you tend to look for talented experience, right? The perfect world, every time you hire somebody, you'd hire someone who's really talented who had a lot of experience. Well, that combination in the marketplace tends to be rare and it tends to be costly and they tend not to move very often. Mm-hmm. And so we found ourselves in Mississippi State in a position where a lot of times we'd be in, in, in the middle of a search for whether it was a coach or administrative position where we, we were finding people that had one of those two buckets. They were either had talent but not a lot of experience or they had a lot of experience they may not be seem as talented. And we made a strategic decision in those situations we were going to hire the talented person and help them get the experience while they work for us. And then as the longer they were there, we were, you know, if we saw that they, we thought they had a future, then we would look for ways to promote them and, and get them more entrenched. Um, that created a lot of turnover, that approach, because a lot of times those people moved down for other opportunities, but it created a lot of turnover. Florida's a little different. Um, we don't have as much turnover, but I do think it's really important that you understand what you're looking for. And I've always kind of valued the talented people, right? The people who can make me think, the people who can provide input or or value that you wouldn't necessarily expect for someone in a certain position. 
that's good. That's really, really good. Good thoughts for any leader there. Now, I, I did mention, he, he mentioned you three different times. And the third thing he said was, he, he really gave you a compliment, you and, and the president there at Mississippi State, for getting the cowbells approved in the SEC. And our question is, do you regret that decision now that you're at the University <laughs> of Florida? <laughs> no, not at all. You know, I, I love tr- the traditions of, of athletics and college athletics, especially or what's really special. And I'm, I'm doing this from my, uh, my home office. And I think I, I'm somewhere in the, on the bookshelves across the way here. I probably have about eight cowbells tucked in little nooks and crannies that, that I've collected over the years. So Mark Keenum, the president there, actually John gives me more credit than I deserve. Uh, Mark Keenum, the president there really made a big appeal to his colleagues in the league at that time and, and got that put into place. And that's a special, uh, that's a special deal to the people of Mississippi and Mississippi State specifically, and, and uh, it's it's fun, it's unique, it's different. Um, it can be loud, but there's not a stadium we go to in the SEC that's not sure. loud, so yep. you got to buckle up wherever you go. And like I said, there's we have great traditions in this league, that, you know, whether it's the Gator Chomp or whether it's uh, Tiger Stadium at night or, you know, when you go down the list, everybody, I don't want to give everybody, I don't want give other schools too much credit. Yeah, don't everybody, do that. Everybody has great traditions, <laughs> and it's, it's, part of the, it's part of the fun of college athletics. Scott, Josh and I, we're big fans of the mantra that we're made up of our collective experiences, that as we go you know, along our careers and just life in general, the people we meet, the experiences that we have help make us who we are. Now, back in the early 90s, you worked in media relations for Ron Polk's Mississippi State Baseball Program, correct? Correct. All right. Yeah. Now, now, I know that was a long time ago, and I know we are in a completely different orbit right now, but working for someone and, and near someone like that, is there anything that you learned back then that you still use today? You know, uh, thinking back to that time, when I was a student, and I was, I was a sponge. I was trying to soak up everything I could. Sure. Coach Polk was so regimented and so organized and so detailed that, you know, if you wanted to have any kind of voice in his program, you had to be the same way. And so it kind of forced me to have some organizational skills that as an 18 and 19 year old, you probably wouldn't normally have. And um, I can remember, you know, this is going to sound really archaic. Um, We had computers back then, but they were uh, my first year doing it. I'm not sure we had a laptop. And so I'd come back from an SEC road trip on a Sunday night. It'd be, you know, 11 o'clock, whatever bus would pull in and I would go up to the, to the office and it would take me an hour to update our stats for the weekend. And I'd plug them into a computer program. It would spit them out. We had a really slow printer. I'd have to, when I say cut and paste, I don't mean hit control C, control V. I mean, I actually had to get the scissors. You had to cut cut and paste, yeah. Paste to like get them on a a single sheet for coach. And it it took me about an hour to do that because I knew that when he came in the office at six next morning and he, he wanted the updated stats in his inbox. Mm-hmm. And so it forced me some, you know, to have some discipline and work ethic that I, that I might not have had otherwise. And real quick story, just, and I think is another great leadership lesson is, is I was with coach Paul, my first year I was, I did that for three years as a student. The first year we went to the college world series in Omaha and um, everything, as I said, was very regimented. And I left there and I went to Auburn and the first year I was at Auburn, I was the baseball SID for Hal Baird. Hal's another great successful SEC, legendary SEC baseball coach. But Hal had a pro sports background, had played pro ball for the Royals organization. And you could not have had two more more diametrically opposed approaches to running a program. And Hal treated the players like they were pro players from the standpoint of they had some responsibility of when they got to a certain place. Coach Polk, we always had pregame meal four hours before the first pitch. And um, you always had a, a travel polo. They gave us a shirt that we all had to wear on this trip, so we all dressed alike. And so, and so my first trip with Auburn, we're going to Tennessee. And I, the day before the trip, I asked the assistant coach or somebody, you know, what are we supposed to wear on the bus? And he kind of looked at me funny, and he said, wear whatever you want. Nobody cares. <laughs> I was like, okay. So then I get on the bus. We And three years traveling baseball at Mississippi State, every meal was provided. So every pregame meal, every postgame meal was provided to us. So I get on the bus to make this trip to, to Knoxville, 
and they hand me an envelope and I go and sit down and open the envelope. It's got all this cash in it. And I, I lean over to the guy next to me. I'm like, what's this for? And they said, that's your meal money. I'm like, well, that's, that's neat. We got, they give us, they give us food on this trip. They didn't do that in Mississippi state. And then I, a few minutes later I go, Hey, by the way, what time was pregame meal? And he said, Dude, it's in that envelope. It's whatever you want it to be. <laughs> so we weren't having a pregame meal together. You didn't have right. to wear the same shirt on the butt. So, so the moral, that, and then the end, end point of that story is my first year traveling with Auburn, we went to the College World Series. So two really successful programs, two really successful coaches, totally different ways of getting to that point of success. And I just, I think that's a great lesson. It taught me a great lesson at a young age that, you know, there's not just one way to do something. Sure. That's great. I'm, I'm an old baseball guy, so I could sit here and listen to those stories all day. I mean, Ron Polk, Coach Polk is amazing. I assume you still get a Christmas card from him with everybody else that's played in SEC. I mean, what, what a great story that is. Yeah, he's, you know, Coach Polk is, is one of a kind. They literally broke the ball with him. Yes, and, sir. Uh, but he, you know, he, I really think Coach Polk deserves credit for, for what college baseball is today across the country because he had such a big impact on what college baseball is in the SEC. And, uh, you know, before, uh, you know, Mississippi State had some crowds, but, before, you know, when he came, he really built a program that, that suddenly people started showing up to watch college baseball. I can remember being a, uh, in high school when Ron, when he had the team with Will Clark and Rafael Palmero, Jeff Brantley, and they would have crowds of eight or 9,000 people show up at Duke Noble for, for a ball game, and that was unheard of. Mm-hmm. And so they built a stadium, and that led to everybody else building stadiums, and now there's a second wave of stadiums. And uh, a lot of that has to do with, with the, you know, the, the vision Coach Polk had for the sport. Wow. Yes, sir. Uh, he's a legend for sure, and I know you cherish those times with him. Coach, I uh, want to talk a little bit about apparel and branding. I know you've got some experience at the Division One level with uh, working through apparel contracts and, and such as that, but relating it back to maybe the high school level, what are some of the thoughts that go into branding deals for the college programs? And if a high school athletic director is listening, who, who might be considering a brand deal, what should he or she be thinking about? You know, those are, those are, uh, that's a great question. That's just, those are really complex. Uh, they can be really complex, at least on the college level. You know, to me, the, the benefit of, of having a, an apparel deal, um, let me back up. Really, the branding and the apparel, they, they, they can go together, but they're really separate, separate entities. Right, um, right. Mm-hmm. You know, understanding what your brand is, you know, can mean different things. It can, you know, your culture can be a part of your brand. Uh, your you know, personalities of your of your coaches or athletes can be part of that brand. Uh, your institutional uh, culture as a high school or as the university is a part of that brand. But then you actually have the marks that is kind of the visualization embodiment of that brand. And once you come up with that, I think it's really important that you have a, a strategy that requires a lot of discipline for how that's going to be presented and what you're going to allow, whether it's in the marketplace or whether it's on your teams, you know, and, and that can be challenging. Sometimes, you know, this doesn't happen quite as much in college anymore. It might happen more in high school, but, you know, used to, you'd have a coach that's, you know, had liked one look and it, that look may not quite be in line with what the, the, the marks for the university need to look like. And so you would have a lot of give and take there to, to try to, help them understand this is what we're going to be. This is what we're going to look like. And you need to get on board with this. So the apparel piece, um, obviously there's a benefit to your athletes and your, your teams because it, you know, working with a Nike or, or one of these other brands helps you to uh, uh, outfit them in a way that's consistent and provides a certain level of quality and, and certain level of gear. But in, you know, the outgrowth of that is, you're going to have a certain look that they're going to provide you once you get on, on the field or on the practice uh, field. And incorporating your marks into that and how that looks, I think, is really important because so many people identify with a certain institution because of the marks and the brand. You know, we have a – University of Florida is a, is a top ten public university. We're, we're getting close to being one of the top five public universities in the country. Hmm. Great academic institution, 50,000 students. We have a med school, a vet school, a law school. We're the land grant for the university, for the state of Florida. It's such a diverse, impressive place from an academic standpoint. And as, as much as all that is the case, 
if you if you ask a random person about the University of Florida on the street outside the state of Florida, uh, they're probably going to talk about Tim Tebow, Steve Spurrier, the Swamp, the Gators. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's where they're going to go right. because that that brand is so important. And understanding that and um, trying to leverage that to benefit the university because our goal here in Florida isn't to leverage the, that awareness. So they'll just know more about athletics. We want that to happen, but we also want them to understand that, yes, this is a top 10 public university and we do have all these great academic programs and it's a wonderful place for people to consider to go to school. So really that that's the true benefit of having a really strong brand is the, is your chance to, to heighten the exposure and awareness level. So when people see that brand or see that mark or understand um, what that team looks like on the field and readily identifies it with your school, it's more than just athletics. It ties into the, to the overall institution. Could you talk a little bit about the, the findings that you that have come out of your time chairing the SEC Working Group on Fan Experience? Uh, that's one of the things that I know that we're always uh, trying to find better ways to put on events and make a, a better experience for our fans. Are there any strategies or data maybe that could be useful for, for a high school administrator in regards to that? You know, the, I think the big takeaway there, we've done uh, the best thing that our conference has done through that group is is we now annually do a survey of all of our fan bases. And, it, it, you know, we've done it now for several years where we have baseline to compare from year to year what our fans are thinking, what they're experiencing, where, where the numbers have moved, which is really helpful. But the crux of all that is no matter how important we think – Uniforms, or no matter how important we think video boards are, traffic, parking, concessions, yep. restrooms—kind of the, the basics, the you know the fundamentals—are still always the most important part of a fan's experience in coming to the game. You got it, you know. And so, uh, it's a great lesson, you know, because we we like our shiny objects and we like our bells and whistles and and. Things do evolve and change. You know, connectivity has become much more important in our surveys today than they were when we started them six, seven years ago. But traffic, parking, restrooms, concessions are still remain the most important things. And so I, I think that's something that at all levels of administration, uh, we don't need to lose sight of. Yeah, great reminder that focus on the fundamentals, the the basics, the foundations, the boring stuff, I guess, right. uh, is, is what people care about. So great reminder there. Uh, Scott, one last question, if you uh, don't mind. We noticed that in early March, you were able to spend some time out in L.A. You went to, a, uh, got an inside look at Dodger Stadium, then up in Silicon Valley, you went to Google's headquarters. Personal and professional development is key to success and growing and learning. So can you, uh, could you possibly give our listeners some insights, some takeaways from that trip? Yeah, sure. You know, that was uh, Google reached out and was putting together a group of uh, schools that use their products and we do so. And, and just, it was kind of a think tank session that it was really well done. It's uh, they have a, they have a, uh, a part of their, of their offices, their offices, actually, this was their, they, their main office, I guess, is in Silicon Valley. This was actually an LA office they have okay. there and uh, they have a, a they bring in business leaders and they have uh, these day long sessions that they allowed us some of some college athletics to be a part of. So a lot of it was about, you know, how you can use disruption as a positive tool in, in whatever line of work you're in. Um, you know, people think of disruption as scary, but, but actually a lot of times it, is an important part of innovation. And sure. so how do you do it in a way where you're, it's not scary and, and you can maximize the potential effects there. You know, the, the Dodger stadium trip was something we kind of tagged onto that because we've, uh, Janet Marie Smith, who's a fellow Mississippi state alum, a fellow Mississippian who is the chief designer for Camden yards and, and the redesign of Fenway park. She's worked with the Dodgers for several years now, redoing Dodger stadium. And hmm. she was kind enough to, to show us around some of the stuff they're doing there. Uh, I, I've specifically reached out to Janet Marie just because, you know, Dodger stadium, this is, is, uh, Josh, you mentioned you're an old baseball guy. This is hard to imagine, but Dodger stadium is the third oldest ballpark in major league baseball behind Fenway and Wrigley field. Wow. And yeah, yeah. from really, uh, I guess angel stadium is late sixties, but really from, um, you know, from about the, the late eighties, 
going back all the way to Wrigley Field in the teens, there are only two or three ballparks that are still existence. And so Dodger Stadium kind of has this really unique time and place that it still represents. And right. she's done a great job, like she did at Fenway, of, of bringing an old iconic ballpark into the, the 21st century. And um, as we look at uh, Ben Hill Griffin Stadium, the Swamp, which I think is one of the most iconic football stadiums in, in the country, um, as you know, we look to the future of, of what it could be, I don't think it, we need a cookie-cutter approach there. We need to maybe take some lessons of how some of these other iconic venues have transformed. And So I was just kind of picking her brain and, and having her show us around a little bit. That's great. Great lesson in picking other people's brains and getting information and wisdom from other leaders in other fields. So I know that, uh, it was a great trip and I have been to Dodger Stadium, not for a game, but just as a visit and did feel like, man, it's sitting right there in almost the heart of LA and it's a, a great place to visit. So uh, I know you enjoyed that as well. Coach, our last part of our show is the two minute drill. So I'm going to turn it over to uh, Coach Baker so we can start our two minute drill. All right. Sounds good. Uh, so Scott, we're going to hit you with some rapid fire questions and we want you just to tell us the first thing that comes to your mind. Okay. All right, let's go. Favorite form of exercise. Running. Favorite childhood memory. Watching ball games. What's your most memorable career moment? Oh, wow. You know, probably being at Mississippi State when uh, Dak Prescott led us to number one in the country. Uh, we had a game against Auburn. They were number two. We were number three. Game day was there for the first time ever, a CBS national game. And uh, we won that game, walking off the field, knowing that we were going to be number one when the polls came out the next day. That was pretty special. That's good. My wife's a state grad, so that was a fun time for us as well. What advice would you give your, your younger self? Listen. That's good. What is your favorite thing to do outside of work? Uh, probably read. I'm pretty boring. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> What's your biggest pet peeve? This day and age is people telling us uh, how long the coronavirus is going to last that have no idea. But uh, So I'll, I'll tie that into people speculating about things they really have no idea about. Good. Great. What's the best piece of advice you have ever received? There's a difference between 20 years of experience and having the same experience for 20 years. Good. I had to think about that. That's great stuff. All right. For the reader, one book you would recommend to leaders? Uh, Team of Rivals by Doris Kearns Goodwin, which was about President Lincoln winning the Republican nomination from like he was going in like into the into the convention, like fourth or fifth on the list. And he ended up winning the nomination, then becomes president. And then all the rivals that he beat out for the nomination, he ended up, even though he wasn't even necessarily close to them, he saw their, their genius and, and intelligence. He put them on his cabinet and that's the cabinet that guided our nation to the Civil War. It's a great leadership book about how to bring others along with you, even when they, they may not necessarily even be on your side. That's good. Can I call time out in the middle of the two-minute drill? That book's like six, 700 pages, I believe, right? I mean, that's a big book. Yeah, you got to dig in. Yes, sir. Do you have a, book, a favorite book you'd recommend that maybe is not quite as long? <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. I, uh, I'd have to think about that. I, I don't read a lot of leadership books, to be honest with you. I, I do love history. Sure. I love... Uh, I just love books uh, that have historical relevance because I, I learn a lot more about leadership from looking how past leaders manage the situation. Um, I'm actually just starting a book, so I can't recommend it yet, but I think it's going to be phenomenal. But it's about Churchill, who I think is a really interesting leader. Uh, it's called The Splendid and the Vile. It's the author named Eric Larson, who writes really good his nonfiction, but writes it in a way that, that's compelling. It's not very dry. And... Um, so any book that, that tells a story of how a leader in real time handled a situation, I think that's why I like Team Revival so much because, you know, you get perspective that a normal leadership book doesn't give you. I love history. Um, I love to try to put my, my mind in a place where someone was and what they were dealing with at a certain uh, period of time. Uh, it's easy to look back and say, why did they do such and such? You go back and you read what they were really doing with it gives you a totally different perspective. Um, and so, I, you know, guys like Lincoln and Churchill and there's so many others that, that we can learn from. I, I, enjoy, I enjoy those kind of history books because they do give you some leadership lessons. Good stuff. Uh, what was the first job you ever had, ever? I worked at a radio station. I'm trying to think how to describe what I did, but basically I made sure the tapes continued to run and I updated the weather every hour. Very nice. Good. What profession other than yours would you like to attempt? 
I get asked that question. I don't know how to answer that. I um, I don't know what I would do. I'm limited in my skill set, so I, I don't know if there's much else I could do outside of athletics. <laughs> On the flip side of that, what profession do you know you would not like to do? How about that? Lawyer. Lawyer. I like reading, but I don't like reading what they read. That's good. Well, let's finish with the um, question, kind of our trademark question. Mr. Strickland, today you've been hanging out with EAD, but let's say you can hang out with anyone. Who would that be and why? I'd like to hang out with George W. Bush. You know, I think he's a misunderstood leader in a lot of ways. But you go back and and, uh, you read about him, it seems like a decent man who tried to make the right decision, even if in the short term he knew probably wasn't going to be popular. That's great. Scott, thanks a lot for joining us. We know you have a ton going on with all the stuff you're involved with and all the craziness going on, but thanks for joining us today. We've had a great time. Thank you, guys. Good luck to you guys. And if you have any more Kelly Barnhill, send them down our way. <laughs> yes, sir. Well, well, hopefully dude. we can find a few. Yes, sir. All right. Take care. Go Gators. Wow. What a privilege it was to spend an hour with one of the top ADs in the collegiate world. Whether it was talking about following a successful leader, putting together a strong staff, fundraising, serving in other leadership roles, knowing when to take advantage of new opportunities, or the many other areas Mr. Scott Strickland talked with us about today. He was open and honest using his huge catalog of experience to help us become better leaders. My main takeaway from this conversation with Mr. Scott Strickland, the Director of Athletics at the University of Florida, was how he truly enjoys being around great people, whether it be SEC leadership, to the incredibly talented staff there at Florida, to the super talented young people involved in all Florida athletics. Scott, thank you for spending time with us today and for demonstrating firsthand what it looks like to be a listener, a thinker, and a leader with a humble spirit. Before you go, we would appreciate you taking a moment to leave us a review on the platform you're listening from or connecting with us on social media, Twitter or Instagram at Hanging with the AD. And until next time, thank you for spending your time hanging with the AD. Mm-hmm.